in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16 is where we'll ultimately be. Uh, but I actually want to start in verse 1 tonight. And um, I've actually got a little bit of a PowerPoint um, to use to kind of set the context for 11 through 16. But we're going to read uh, John chapter 10, 1 through 10. Uh, I'm going to kind of do some review of where Mark has already been uh, in the last two weeks. Uh, and then we'll la land with uh, where we're going to be this week, with, which is Jesus uh, being the good shepherd. So I think Justin will get the uh, PowerPoint signal from this here in just a moment. Um, I'll read this first half of John chapter 10 uh, as we kind of set the table here tonight. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm going to try this again. Send the signal again here. This was working an hour ago. That's how these things go. This PowerPoint, interestingly enough, so I haven't taught on this passage um, since I did student ministry, and I haven't done student ministry since 2008. Uh, so this presentation's old. I dressed it up a little bit. Um, and it was kind of too funny and, and, and goofy um, not to use, but it was also good. And so uh, I wanted to go ahead and and use it. I'm flashing up here. I don't know what that means. Oh, I think we're, go we're, we're good. All right. All right. Perfect. So um, the context, this is the Feast of Dedication. I think Mark talked about this in weeks past. So we're, this is a wintertime feast. Um, it's a continuation. When you get into John chapter 10 and you talk about last week as Mark did the door and as we're going to talk about this week with Jesus being the good shepherd, this is a continuation of John chapter 9 and the healing of the blind uh, beggar. So uh, all of this kind of works together and overlaps, and, and it's very difficult to kind of talk about one thing without referencing the other. So that's why I'm starting in this way. Uh, and the problem of chapter 9, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, was that Israel was led by false shepherds who drew them away from the Messiah. That's kind of the basic overall context. Um, but there's two metaphors here in John chapter 10 that are being employed, at least in the first 10 verses. And then we get to, I am the good shepherd here in just a moment. Uh, but the two metaphors can be boiled down kind of this way. Jesus is the shepherd who separates his sheep from the adulterous generation of the nation uh, of, of Israel. So 
going back to chapter 9, healed of his blindness, the man was put out of the synagogue for his association with Jesus. But in reality, as one of his flock, Jesus had led him out uh, of the fold of that unbelieving uh, Judaism. And then Jesus is the door. This is the other metaphor we have here in, in the first part of the chapter. He's the door of the sheepfold. Uh, this is the, equates to, to, to the kingdom or to salvation. Uh, he alone, Jesus does, provides access to salvation. No one comes to the Father but by him. So Jesus is the shepherd that separates his flock from the others. This is the first uh, sort of metaphor in front of us. Uh, and in this first metaphor, the sheepfold equates to the nation of Israel. All right? As you go down... Uh, the shepherd of the true flock is Jesus in this first metaphor, uh, and the true shepherd enters legally. Uh, that true shepherd is introduced by John the Baptist. He's the gatekeeper there in verse 3 of chapter 10. Uh, the, the false shepherds are going in over the walls, uh, but the true shepherd enters legally. And then a believing remnant of Israel would follow, is going to follow Jesus out of the unbelieving nation. And that's illustrated by what happened in chapter 9 with the blind man who worshipped him um, and was expelled from the synagogue. And then, of course, the greater culmination of what Jesus is teaching here is that at Pentecost, 3,000 Jews would separate from uh, Judaism as it existed in the first century to enter the flock of Jesus, to um, be on the ground floor in the establishment of the church. So the imagery being used, um, some of my uh, formatting has changed a little bit, but that's okay. Um, shepherds lead their sheep into the fold and leave them there for the night, guarded by a watchman. So you've got you know, the sheep of three flocks, they're brought into a fold, they leave, they're guarded by this uh, good watchman. In the morning, Mark talked about this last week, each shepherd enters the fold and his sheep respond to his voice. The sheep respond to his voice, not to the voice of another, but only uh, to him. They are known by him, they know him, and they follow him out of the fold. Is it working? They do follow him out. This last one's a, li this last one's a little slow, a little bit like me. But he makes it out, jumps over the, the wall there. So again, this first metaphor, the sheepfold is Judaism. The shepherd is Jesus. And the sheep are these believers, i.e. The, the man born blind uh, that Jesus had healed in chapter 9. So this is a, 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 what would have been a first century sheepfold uh, in, in Israel. You can kind of get an idea, not just a ton of space, uh, but protected a safe space uh, to put these sort of harmless um, animals that, are, that are, tend to be prey uh, to many other kinds of, uh, of animals. The second metaphor is that Jesus is the door of the entrance into the kingdom. So in this metaphor, the sheepfold sort of changes its meaning. So it's no longer the unbelieving nation, it's the kingdom, it's salvation. That's what the sheepfold uh, means in this second metaphor. So he kind of he mixes the metaphors uh, in this chapter, and you kind of have to stay on top of it to get uh, to down to exactly what he's saying. The door is Jesus, the only way of entering into 
the kingdom, as I've already said. And then the going in and out is the, the continuing provision that Jesus gives to his flock. And then you have this idea of other sheep, Gentiles, who will believe on the shepherd and after Pentecost become a part of his new flock, the church, the called out community. Uh, this is comprising of both Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus said, I am the door of the sheepfold. Um, again, my formatting's messed up. It wasn't messed up an hour ago, but something's happened. Uh, Jesus is the door of the sheepfold, and this means he's the only uh, means of entrance into the kingdom. Again, the sheepfold, um, the, the meaning of that has changed in this second metaphor. Uh, you only come into salvation. You only come into the kingdom through Jesus. All right, there's the door to that same sheepfold. And I think Mark mentioned how shepherds would, would often position themselves in the door um, as a way of, of regulating who would come in and who would go out. And then as we get to, chapter, or get to verse 11 and verse 14 of chapter 10, Jesus says, makes this great declaration of being the chief shepherd. And we'll read that here in just a moment. But when he says he is the good shepherd, excuse me, he says he's the good shepherd, and that he calls his sheep from the sheepfold, the, the real thrust of what Jesus is saying here is that he is the true shepherd. And in being the true shepherd, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they are the false ones. So in John 10, he is first stating that, that the fold is Israel, and as the true shepherd, he calls them out of the fold, out of unbelieving Judaism. That's those who will trust in him. And this is a beautiful recount, again, of what he did with with uh, the man in blindness there in chapter 9, calls him out of the nation, calls him out of the unbelieving synagogue. The rulers thought they set him out of the synagogue, but in fact, Jesus was calling him out of unbelief. And so as the, as, as the shepherd, he, he separates, Jesus does, believers from this realm of unbelief. He, he calls out and his sheep respond. And the other metaphor, again, just to review, Christ is the door. And the idea is clear that the door, as the door, it is he who saves. But again, in that second parable, the objects change their meaning to a degree in that the sheepfold becomes no longer Judaism, no longer the unbelieving nation, but it's a metaphor for salvation itself. And as Jesus being the door, only through him, he's the only way, the only place of entrance into the kingdom, into salvation. He's the only way to be saved. So it's not law or law-keeping, but through Christ alone, as he will declare later, the, the I am statement we'll get to in a couple of weeks, he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So that's the context for leading into the next six verses, and that's where we're going to now read um, and then get into the outline that I have for you. So let's read John 10, now 11 through 16. This will be... Uh, really our material for tonight. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John writes, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is the word of the Lord. So in these five or six verses, Jesus repeats the, the I am statement that's in front of us tonight. I am the good shepherd, which raises the question, what makes the good shepherd good? The word for good used here isn't quite the same as what we think of when we think of a good person, a good parent, a good point guard. It it does convey the idea of moral goodness, but it also carries with it the idea of being lovely, of being noble and winsome and, and attractive. And the embedded irony is that these are not words you would normally associate with a first century shepherd. The first century shepherd was not winsome, was not attractive. He was dirty and unkept, probably smelled bad. He, lived, he literally lived with animals. But the, but the good shepherd is contra to all these stereotypes and common characteristics. He is, in fact, lovely. In fact, he is the model of loveliness, is what this word sort of sets up for us. Moreover, his claim is that he is the good shepherd. So his claim is being made as if, not as if he were one good shepherd among many good shepherds, but that he is the good shepherd. He is the only one. Which this exclusive statement serves, I think, as yet another indictment upon that established religious leadership. The leadership was not not good because they had failed to truly shepherd the people of Israel. What what was one of the names he gave to them? He called them blind guides. Blind guides. Those people are not going to shepherd the people of God well. They're in their blindness They cannot see in their blindness. uh, They cannot protect. And so that is what goodness means. It's just that he's noble, he's lovely, he's winsome, he's attractive, he's not blind. He sees, he knows. What is it then that goodness does? What does the good shepherd do? Well, four times in the chapter, he says that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the, the repetition of that phrase really serves as the qualifier for his goodness. That being the case, I, I want to dwell just for a moment on why his sacrificial death is the qualifier for him being good. So first, we see that, that the laying down of his life, his death, his sacrificial death, is voluntary. Verses 11, verses 15, verses 18, which we didn't read, These verses essentially say the same thing in regards to this, that he laid down his life and he did it voluntarily. And that's important because we must never think of the death of Jesus Christ that it was somehow an accident or that it was some kind of tragedy. Now, it usually is a tragedy when a young, innocent man dies, usually in an accident or some other way. But the death of Jesus is no accident. The the death of Christ was and is, it's the great hinge of history. It was planned before the foundation of the world. And it was toward that end, that death, that Jesus' life both consciously and deliberately moved. And interesting, when when you read John, when you read the gospel, he repeatedly uses the word our 
in relation to Jesus' time on earth. And, and what John is underscoring is the life of Jesus marched toward a particular hour. The text repeats in different narratives that it was not his hour, or his hour had not yet come. And the hour is his death. The hour is his reason for coming. He came to die for our salvation and for God's glory. So the cross is the heart of the Father and the will of the Son consummating the divine plan of redemption. That's the death of Jesus. Not an accident. Not a tragedy. Not an out-of-control mob. I lay it down of my own accord, Jesus would say. I have the authority to lay it down, he would also say. His life was his to give, not to be taken from him. His laying down his life was, was purposeful in its intention. He did it voluntarily. Second, we see that his death is vicarious. That is, Jesus dies not for his own sin, but for ours and, f and in our place. For the sheep he gave his life, and not on our behalf, but in our place. And that's an important distinction. Soldiers will die on behalf of their countrymen, but not necessarily in place of them. And so the meaning of that is this. We are sinners. As sinners, we are, are dead spiritually, and we deserve to die physically. But Christ willingly died in our place, which is to say he took the punishment intended for us, and he did so that we who deserve to die, instead of dying, we would have life. That is what is meant by Jesus' vicarious or his substitutionary death. The death we should have died, he died. The punishment reserved for us, he bore. The wrath of God due our sin, he endured. D.A. Carson, Bible scholar, commentator, he explains this further. He says, The shepherd does not die for his sheep to serve as an example, throwing himself off a cliff in a grotesque and, and futile display while bellowing, See how much I love you! No, says Carson. The assumption is that the sheep are in mortal danger, that in their defense the shepherd loses his life, that by his death they are saved, that and that alone is what makes him the good shepherd. Some would say, well, you know, that's, that's not the biggest deal. He's God, and, 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 and so he had a body, and he gave up his body. Is, is that a big deal? Well, there's more here than that. There, there, there was a lot, there's a lot more here than that, and it's bound up again in the word life. He lays down his life. And the word life is not the word bios or zoe. Remember our discussion of those two words in the bread of life study, bios and zoe? Those are the two words for life in, in John chapter 6. Bios, biological life. Zoe, life that transcends the physical. This, this word zoe extends into what we think of when we think of eternal life or abundant life. But here it's neither of those forms of the word life that are being employed. It's the word suke, which is the word for soul. And the suke speaks of the whole person, not the outside, but the, but the inside. The suke is the inside. And so he gave up his soul. He gave up his, his whole person. He didn't just 
feel the pain of the nails in his body and the pain of the thorns on his brow and the, and the pain of the scourging on his back. His, his whole soul was tortured with sin-bearing anguish and with suffering. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, the Son of Man gives his soul as a ransom for many. It translates life. That's how we normally read that verse. The Son of Man gives his life as a ransom for many. But the word there is suke again. He gives his soul, his whole person. He feels it in every part of his being. There's a story told by the late Reverend Richard Wormbrand, a man who suffered for the gospel when he was imprisoned for years in, in Romania. He says, a story is told of two brothers who once lived completely opposite lives. The older was a God-fearing man, good to everyone. The younger was rebellious, even violent. The older brother tried to influence him, the younger, but in vain, one e <clears throat> but in vain. One evening, while the older sat quietly in his home, the younger brother stormed in with blood on his clothes, clothes shouting, Save me if you can. I have killed a man, and the police are after me. The older replied, Quick, let's change clothes. They did so. The murderer put on the white garments of his older brother, and the innocent brother put on the blood-stained garment of his younger brother. Scarcely had they finished when the police arrived. Seeing the older brother in bloody clothes, they knew they had found their man and dragged him from his home. They had no doubt that, that he was the one that they sought. Brought to the court, they, uh, the accused admitted his guilt. The, but the judge bowed to what seemed clear evidence and sentenced him to death. He had one last wish. At the moment of my execution, please give my brother this letter. His wish was granted. Later, when the brother opened the letter, he read, I died in your place, in your bloody garment for your guilt. I was happy to make this sacrifice for you and ask that now you also live a life of love and goodness in response. The innocent brother was dead. Nothing now could change that fact. But as often as the, as, as the former comrades asked the younger brother still living to participate in, in an act of violence or evil, he would reply, I cannot do it in the white garment I received from the brother who died for me. So that's a vicarious substitution. It's a rich story to kind of lay that out for you. But then finally, the good shepherd lays down his life sacrificially, or some might even say specifically. That is, he effectually died for a specific sheep, a specific people designated as the sheep. And if you really care about the doctrine of limited atonement, the, the L in the TULIP acronym that helps us explain the five points of Calvinism, then this is your verse. You like this verse right here. And I should just say, as a disclaimer, Mark and I are both Calvinists. He tends to bend away from limited atonement. I tend to bend toward limited atonement. And that's fine. We don't fight over it. We don't lose sleep over it. Russ McKnight, this church's first pastor, he was an ardent, ardent five-point Calvinist. And Mark, this church's second pastor, he's a convinced four-point Calvinist. I'm sort of a four-and-a-half-point Calvinist because I want both sides to like me. And Mark would agree that, that Christ lays down his life for the sheep. But he would also say that Jesus doesn't limit his sacrifice to the sheep. 
which means it's not limited or, or particular to those who would believe because the text doesn't say he died for the sheep and nobody else, right? It doesn't say that. In fact, the Gospel of John repeatedly says that he died for the world, that he's the Lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. You've got those verses to deal with. I, however, think there's a thrust to what's being said here by Jesus. And without particular redemption or, or limited atonement in view, the words of Jesus here kind of lose their punch. And I say that because he's made it clear that he has sheep. And these are sheep that he knows. And he knows them intimately. And they recognize his voice. And these sheep in his flock are the ones that he's laid down his life for. And it's not that the power of his blood is limited. The atoning power of his blood is limitless. It was rather the efficient use of his blood which was limited. Limited to the sheep that he calls his own. I connect this with a verse like Matthew 121. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. His people, his sheep. It's an actual atonement. It's not a potential atonement. He actually play, paid in full the penalty for his sheep, sheep whom he knew and throughout history is calling to himself. But that is an in-house sort of intramural debate. We shouldn't, let us divide, we shouldn't let it divide us. There are great folks on either side of it. We can talk more about it later if you'd like. But what we see as we read through this is that these sheep, these sheep for whom Jesus has, has been their sacrifice, later on in the chapter, he says that it is the Father who has given them to him. And not one of them is going to be snatched out of the Father's hand. So these sheep are died in the place of, and the eternal life granted them, it can never be taken away. It's a, it, that's what Mark taught this weekend in 1 Peter chapter 1 that it can never be taken away. It's preserved. And so what we, what we get from reading that, what we gather from, from thinking through that, both its implications and applications, is that the sheep of Jesus, the sheep whom the good shepherd shepherds, these are favored sheep. These must be really special sheep. So what can be said of the sheep? What we gather from these verses is that there's nothing really special about the sheep at all. What's special about them is that they are known by the shepherd. That's their distinction. Just a question. Have you ever been around someone? Have you ever known someone and you could just say about them, that guy knows God. That woman knows God. I think we all want to be the type of person that when we're out of a room or away from a conversation or when we die and pass on, that people will say of us, he knew God. He knows the Lord. How, how can I be that kind of person? How can I be the kind of person that, that even if I'm not great at anything, even if I don't have a nice home or make a lot of money, even if, if I'm not you know, magnetic or funny or interesting, that people will say of me, that man knows God. He walks with God. I think becoming the type of person that knows God, that has an intimate fellowship with him, begins with a staggering truth found in Jesus' words here, and that is this. It's the realization that he knows you. He's the shepherd, and he knows his own. 
And there's hardly a more stunning thought. There's hardly a more unraveling idea to me the fact it, than the fact that I am known by the God of the universe, that I am known and loved and cared for by God Almighty. And this knowledge that, that he has of me is not merely of my existence, as if he knows my rank and, and file and serial number. No, this is, this is beyond just cold data. This is intimate knowledge. This is knowledge and understanding of my heart. I, I don't even understand my heart most of the time, but he does. He has knowledge and understanding of my desires, of, of my hopes, even of my sin. He knows every detail. And the reason this truth hits us as hard as it does is because in each of this, each of us, there is both a desire to be known, but alongside this desire to be known and loved is a fear of being fully known. Because if we're fully known, man, then we might be rejected. Then we might be exposed. So if we could just find someone to completely know us and completely love us at the same time, what a tremendous relief that would be. Well, newsflash, someone does know you that way, and he loves you in spite of those things that you think are deal breakers for anyone to really ever know you or love you. And that someone is, is Christ. Westcott, who's a commentator, he said it like this. He said, nothing in his flock is hidden from him. Their weaknesses, their failures, their temptations, their sins, the good they've neglected when it was within reach, the evil which they have pursued when it lay afar, all is open before his eyes. He knows them, and he loves them still. It's a great quote. So back to the metaphor of the sheep. At first glance, a flock of sheep may seem all very similar. You know, I don't really have an eye for the distinguishing marks of sheep, but I think, as with any animal, upon closer examination, there's going to be differences. Differences in size and height and, and, and in their wool, even in their coloring and their temperament. And, and it's a good shepherd that recognizes those differences. In fact, it's by the differences that the shepherd knows them. And that should be a thought that you find comforting. It means that you don't have to be like someone else or be something you're not. You're at your best when you are as God made you to be because that's how he knows you to be. That's how the shepherd wants you to be. And as if that's not enough, Christ goes on here in this passage to compare his knowledge and his relationship to the elect, to the sheep, with the knowledge and depth of relationship that he himself has with the Father. The eternal relationship of father and son in Jesus' mind is comparable to the relationship the shepherd has with the sheep. Is that the way you know Christ? Is that a reality for you? Because if there is in you a heart to know God, to, to pursue him, to be near him, you must recognize first his heart for you, his pursuit and knowledge of you. It's just as John reiterates in 1 John 4, not that we love God, but that, he, but that he first loved us. Which, doesn't that make you feel special? I mean, we have this, this shepherd, this great shepherd. He sovereignly saved us, his sheep. He died for us. He calls us by name, and we, and we hear him. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He pursues us, gives us eternal life, keeps us forever. I mean, that is 
good stuff. I could just stop there and we could all leave very, very satisfied in thinking about those things. However, truth like that can, can run the danger of turning the goodness and the grace of God toward us. It, we, we can twist it. We can twist it and make it, th- make it this sort of arrogant, in-house, elitist mentality that, that we're somehow the select few. And so I love the words of Jesus that come along in verse 16. It knocks down any sort of exclusive, inverted thinking. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And if we remember our context, Jesus is in effect saying to the Pharisees that I called out the blind beggar from the fold of Judaism. My salvation is also now for those who have nothing to do with Judaism. Remember the meaning of the fold. My salvation is now for those who also have nothing to do with Judaism. They're from a different fold entirely. So just when the the Jewish disciples begin to feel like they're the real select heirs of Abraham, Jesus strikes with, I have other sheep that are not even a part of this Jewish fold. I have have sheep among the Gentiles. And it's the spirit of John 10, 16 that I think spurs most, most of missions history. I don't know if you read a lot of missions history, but it's some of the most enriching Christian reading that you can do. Christian biographies and, 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 and missionary biographies is some of the richest reading that you can engage in. And here's what, here's what I mean in terms of this verse spurring missions history. You had the particular, the particular Baptists in England. And these Baptists, they were frozen by their hyper-Calvinism. And, and Jesus gets through to the man, William Carey, in saying, I have other sheep that are not of this English fold, sheep in India. And with William Carey, the modern missions movement was born. And just, just when, when missions agencies and, and churches in the 1800s were very content with what they saw as success on the coastlands of, of the world, the, the words of Jesus stirred up men like Hudson Taylor, I have other sheep. They're, they're inland. They're in the middle of China. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. And, and to David Livingstone, I, I have other sheep inland in the middle of, of Africa. And then when, when the Western church began to feel content that every country of the world had been penetrated with the gospel, a man like Cameron Towson was stirred up and said, thinking on the words of Jesus, there are other sheep that are not of the nation state fold but they're hidden among tribal peoples of this world millions of them with without a word of scripture in their vernacular and he, be, he began Townsend did looking at ethno-linguistic groups as a strategic piece of spreading the gospel so John ten sixteen is really a great missionary text Every time we start to get comfortable with, with just us, it's like a thorn in the cushion of the pew, but it's far more than that. It's full of hope and, and power, and, and that's really what's needed with frontier missions, powerful encouragement. And so before I close, I just want to look at three more things in John ten sixteen. They should fuel missions confidence and missions assurance. First, the text makes it clear that, that Christ has people besides those who are already converted. He says it matter-of-factly, I have other sheep. There were then and there have always been people 
who, who argue that the doctrine of election and predestination, it makes missions unnecessary. But those people are mistaken. It does not make missions unnecessary. It actually makes missions hopeful. A guy named John Alexander, he was former president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He said, at the beginning of my missionary career, I said that if predestination were true, I could not be a missionary. Now, after 20 years of struggling with the hardness of the human heart, I say I could never be a missionary unless I believed in the doctrine of predestination. <laughs> the doctrine gives hope that, that Christ most certainly has a people outside the church walls and even among the nations. I have other sheep means very, one very simple thing, that he has other sheep besides us, other sheep. Second assurance from verse 16 the Lord has committed himself to bring his lost sheep home. He will do it. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them also. He will bring them. Now, that does not mean, as some thought in William Carey's day, that Christ will gather in his sheep without asking us to participate. It's not what it means. In John 17, 18 and John 20, 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Very consistent with how Jesus prays in, in the upper room in John 17, 20. He says, I do not pray for these, his disciples, only, but also for those believe, who will believe in me through their word. In other words, just as Jesus calls his sheep, as he has done with his disciples, and, and as he has done with the blind beggar of John 9, and, and with Zacchaeus, and with others, so he still speaks through the gospel today. He still calls his sheep by name. They hear his voice. They follow him. He does it, but he doesn't do it without the message being shared. He doesn't do it without a preacher, as Romans points out. But he does it. Third assurance from this verse is that little clause at, at the end, and they will heed my voice, these other sheep. None of Christ's sheep finally reject his word. They, they will come because they hear the voice of their shepherd. They will heed my voice. Close with a story told by Ruth Tucker. A story about Peter Cameron Scott. He was born in 1867, who went on to be the founder of African Inland Mission. Tucker says that Scott had tried twice to serve in Africa, but had, had come home both times due to malaria. And the third attempt was especially joyful because he was joined by his brother John. But that joy evaporated very quickly as John fell victim to fever, and then Scott had to bury John all by himself. But at the grave, he rededicated himself to preaching the gospel. But again, as his health broke, he had to return to England utterly discouraged. But Tucker tells the story this way. In, in London, something wonderful happened. He, he needed a fresh source of inspiration, and he found it at a tomb in Westminster Abbey. It was a tomb that held the remains of a man who had inspired many, many others in their missionary service to Africa. The tomb was David Livingstone's. And as Scott knelt reverently at the grave of Livingstone, he was praying, and he read the inscription on Livingstone's grave. It read, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And with that, not knowing if he would return to Africa, Scott returns to Africa. He would go on to establish AIM, and that missions organization is still in operation today. So the good shepherd, 
Let's just review here. He knows his sheep. He goes before his sheep. He gives his sheep life. He lays down his life for them. He has other sheep which he brings into the fold. And he lays down his life for the sheep that he might take it up again. And he lays it down on his own initiative, voluntarily. This next picture, as I close, I, I saw this in the Atlantic Monthly. They do a photo blog that they update a couple of times a week. And I saw this one a few weeks ago. And it just struck me with how beautiful it was. This is a, a Turkish shepherd uh, whose sheep got stuck in this bog, in this mud, um, couldn't move, was helpless, and would have died there, but he went in after him uh, and carries him out. And I think that's a beautiful picture of our, of our good shepherd who goes in and pulls us out of the mud, pulls us out of our helpless situation, uh, and carries us out. And I, one reason I love the picture is just how joyful the man's expression is. He's not pained or exasperated. Um, he just appears to be doing what he knows he should be doing in, in the rescue of, uh, of that animal. Pretty neat photo. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for uh, shepherding us, for sending Christ to uh, be our good shepherd, to lay down his life for us, to, to give himself voluntarily, to give himself in our place, to save us from our sin, to endure your wrath, the, the wrath reserved for us was poured out upon him. So Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the truth of your word and, and for how you use this metaphor of, of shepherding in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's so clear to us that, that we are like sheep who have gone astray um, and you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And you've not left us to ourselves, though. You've left the flock, left the 99, gone after each of us, the one, and, uh, and saved us, brought us to yourself. So, Lord, just hit us with the magnitude of, of what it means to be yours, of what, what it means to be uh, taken care of by you, preserved and protected by you. And, God, give us just uh, a sense of, of calling uh, to share the gospel with those other sheep that we know are out there. We don't know who they are, but we can faithfully share uh, the, the gospel uh, with people, and, and they will respond uh, to the message uh, if, if they belong to you. So give us faithfulness in that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.